some of our historians talking about World War One. So this year marks the 100th anniversary of the start of World War One, which is actually in August, was in August. November 11th actually is the end of World War One, which didn't happen until 1918. So the 100th anniversary of the end is still a few years away. Um, but we thought it's a good opportunity on Veterans Day here in the U.S. to think about this war that really shaped so much of the 20th century, shaped how we think about uh, modern warfare, shaped who knows what else that I'm sure you guys are going to talk about. And it would be we would be remiss if we didn't um, at least mark this occasion. So that's why we're having this with some of our most awesome faculty historians. <laughs> so I'll start at the end. Josh Fulton, expert in all kinds of American history. <laughs> Mary Fafleese, sure, uh, Europe and stuff and peacefulness. <laughs> and Jim McIntyre likes to dress up in Revolutionary War clothing <laughs> and talk about the revolution. So yes. with that, I will turn that over to these awesome. guys. That's not the best true. intro ever. <laughs> Love that right, intro. <laughs> well done, well done, Troy. So, so who's Go for it. You're oh, going to start. Okay. <laughs> Which five minutes ago I said you can start this with anyone but me. <laughs> uh, so that's fine. Are you guys good? Volume? Yeah. Cool. We'll do. Okay. So what did World War One do to shape the shape the 20th century? And I think it's a fair question even to say why you know why talk about World War One a hundred years later in the 21st century? Is it still does it still have an effect? And I'll give some basic facts um, and let you judge for yourselves, and then you know I think we'll kind of chime in from there. Sure. So World War One lasts for four years. It is the fir considered the first modern industrial war. You have all kinds of gadgets, tanks are used for the first time, poison gas, uh, air power, airplanes, the tie, right? <laughs> um, so and air forces. Um, it. <laughs> all told kills about 20 million people. Uh, most of those, as different from World War II, most of those casualties from World War I, and those numbers vary, we, mm -hmm. we know, uh, depending on whose book you read. At any rate, um, most of those people were actually service members. Okay, World War II is horrible because you have a lot of civilians being killed, and there's a much higher body count. Um, also, just people that shaped the rest of the century certainly had profoundly, uh, profound experiences in World War I. Um, some, and I'll just throw out some names that pretty much at random. Many people know Adolf Hitler served in the German Army in the First World War. Winston Churchill was briefly First Lord of the Admiralty until he made a huge mistake, <laughs> but also served on the Western Front. Um, Harry Truman served in World War I. Uh, George Marshall, Conrad Hilton, Hilton Hotels, <laughs> um, yeah, well, uh, the founder of Ferrari Motor Company. In fact, he was in an Italian. He was in an Italian mountain unit and the stallion Ferrari emblem. That was their you know, kind of trivial pursuit, but cool. <laughs> um, also, let's see who else. Ernest Winnipeg Winnie? Bear. So Winnie the Pooh. The, <laughs> the inspiration for Winnie the Pooh was this Canadian soldier in this other Canadian's infantry regiment. And so after the war, when he started writing children's novels, because Winnipeg Bear was this really big, but real, he was like a bear of a guy. He was over six feet tall, but huge, could pick two guys up, one in each arm, but he was so friendly. So that's Winnie the Pooh. Um, let's see, who else? Uh, yeah, Ernest Hemingway. 
Ernest, Ernest Hemingway, certainly, uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, uh, some of the images out, like J.R.R. Tolkien was on a patrol in Ypres um, and came across, a, if any of, you have, any of you have seen the two towers, they have the dead marshes, right, all mm -hmm. these bodies sort of floating in a swamp. That was one of Tolkien's memories 20 years later when he sat down to write the book of a patrol he was on as a teenager in Ypres in World War I. Ypres is this battlefield in, up in Belgium, really horrible. Um, as most battles on the Western Front ended up being. So, you know, there's an, a number of people whose experiences are profoundly shaped. Um, the, the war starts the beginning of the end of imperialism uh, because all of these great European powers who have colonial empires call on troops from those empires to come fight for them. Um, and as I was telling my, my 102 class just before this, you know, if, if these Europeans are so racially superior to Arabs Indians and so forth, uh, and, and North Africans. Then how come you need us to fight your war? And that's a very—that's a really powerful question when you take it home. You know, if you guys are so much better than us, why did you need us? And and so it starts to kind of put some chinks in that in that racial hierarchy. Um, and so I think that's probably about a, enough for me to get us started. That's great. Yeah. Just got a Lord of the Rings fact out of that I, that I was unaware of. Absolutely. <laughs> so, um, okay, if I Great, yeah. okay. So usually when I'm talking to my students about about World War One, uh, one of the things I always say to them is that it's a it's a very European war in the sense that it's not really a war that we as Americans own as much. We're not we were not involved in it as much as long as 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 Europeans were. Um, we get into it in 1917. Um, and so when I remember as a student in Northern Ireland studying in, which is part of the United Kingdom, around November, I was there in the fall of, of the year 2000, seeing politicians and, and people walking around, and, and just ordinary everyday people walking around with this little flower on their lapel. And it was a red poppy. And poppies grew on the, on the fields of, of Belgium and France, and they're a red flower, a very sturdy, strong flower. Um, and, they, and I remember thinking to myself, I wonder why they're, what's with these flowers? Why are they wearing them? And I realized that they're, they're wearing them to commemorate uh, World War I. They're wearing, wearing it to commemorate Armistice Day. And uh, Europe, Europeans refer to it, we call it Veterans Day. They traditionally have referred to it as Armistice Day because the war was still so immediate. When you put it in the terms that, you know, basically villages lost an entire generation of young men. And when you put it in those terms and you'd see a group of young men, whether it's from Sussex or wherever in England, all joining up together, hey, recruiter, all you guys can go together and, and go forth into a battle. And then in that battle, you're, you're seeing tens of thousands of casualties in you know, a couple of hours. Entire generations of young men were lost. So this was seared out of the consciousness of Europeans. And they remember it in a way I think that we don't. I don't know if you, if you would, guys would agree with that or not, but um, I think that we, we sort of have this, okay, we're there kind of for about a year and a half, and you know, it's great, but you know, for Europeans, it's so much more immediate, and it's so much still part of their collective consciousness. Uh, and I, was, I remember being struck by that almost 100 years later as a student there, seeing how much it's still very much a part of the memory of Europeans, um, particularly in Northern Ireland, where I, I noticed, um, if you know anything about Northern Ireland, Northern Ireland, and sorry, these guys hear me talk about all the time, but that's what I studied when I was in graduate school. And um, in Northern Ireland, uh, you had a, a conflict going on between Catholics and Protestants for about 30 years. Well, actually, it's more like centuries, but that's another story. But they would commemorate often a lot of their, their different um, signifying events through murals. And I remember seeing murals that loyalists, people who are, are loyal to Britain who want to see Northern Ireland remain part of the United Kingdom would put up to commemorate their grandfather who served in World War I. 
And it was very much, they were very proud of it, and they're very proud of their service, and very proud that they were loyal to the king. And that they stayed loyal to the king when the Republic of Ireland um, was, was not so loyal to the king at that point. So um, I just, again, I walked away out of there with, a, with a, a strong sense of how much more immediate and how much more real this was to them than I think it is to, to us here in the United States. I think for me, um, the, the meaning of the First World War and the sort of impact of the First World War, if thinking about it uh, as connected to the United States, uh, I think both of you have alluded to at least some of this, um, the fact that we don't uh, tend to uh, mark it uh, as an influential conflict in the course of our history, uh, despite the fact that it certainly was. Mm -hmm. uh, you know. Growing up in the last 30 years or so, the manner in which most forms of public memory uh, of the First World War have come through things like the Sergeant York movie from the mid-20th century <laughs> or sort of these other sort of pop images uh, that belie the realities uh, of a really terrible conflict. Um, and also a conflict that, that I would say sort of alters how we conceive of the role of the state at home uh, as well. Uh, this is a time uh, in which the issues of patriotism, um, you know, really were questioned for some uh, and resulted in real conflicts uh, against individuals from all around the world uh, because America in the early 20th century is certainly a nation that is teeming with recently arrived immigrants. Uh, and many of them had to confront questions of uh, their own identity uh, as a result of this. So at least for me, uh, this is also one of the things I think that mm -hmm. is uh, important with the war. Uh, to the earlier point about sort of this being a, a European-centered war, uh, I, I've always sort of been struck by how it is a conflict that really destroys a lot of the imperial structures that had existed for centuries prior. Uh, historians like to refer to this sort of long 19th century uh, as being this period between about you know 1789, so the period which the French Revolution is sort of kicking off, uh, and then they take it all the way to 1914, uh, so the beginning of the First World War. Uh, it does sort of beg the question then of the effect of this war when it comes to its conclusion uh, is destroying something that had been around for quite some time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, I actually, I had a follow-on comment too. Uh, I, I would say it's, not, it's it's almost many places, but the U.S. <laughs> a few years ago, I was at a conference in Canada um, on McGill University campus, which is in Montreal, and Canada and New Zealand and Aust Australia also sent troops to Europe to fight in this because they're part of the British Empire. Um, and two things stuck out: one, they they stopped everything. So imagine at about 10.30 if all activity on this campus ceased and we all went out, even in the rain, okay, um, they actually brought three very large cannons onto campus oh, wow. and fired a salute. Started and, and at 11 a.m. the entire city got quiet. I mean you could just, you know, you hear the one bell toll and, and just everything stopped. So and Montreal is you know, the size of New York, Chicago. So imagine stopping Chicago for 10 minutes in the middle of a weekday. Mm -hmm. And, and so it, they take this very, very seriously. And everyone had poppies as well. Um, so it's many other places around the world that, that remember this, this sacrifice. Because also in Canada, a lot, of, a lot of kids went and never came back. Mm -hmm. um, 
Uh, just to pick up on that about the poppies, I just was reminded of something. You know, I was looking, I go to the BBC, usually my students hear this ad nauseum all the time for my news, and they've had a lot of articles um, recently, of course, for the, the centennial of the beginning of the war, and uh, they had an article about the poppies. And I guess now in, it, in Britain it's become fashionable, I thought this is such a great reflection of modern society, that, you know, not only in addition to the red poppies, and they're careful to say that the red poppies are not supposed to represent blood, even though they are blood red color, um, but that they're supposed to remember, the, it's supposed to be an honor and a remembrance of the, of the soldiers who died. But they also, people will also wear white poppies to signify peace, that they are, that they are, uh, they are advocates of peace. And they now have purple poppies that people are wearing. And the purple poppies are in commemoration of all of the animals lost and sacrificed during World War I. And they had, the, they had an image of this poor horse like suspended on a crane, being hoisted onto a ship to be to be taken over to Europe, and the horse was like ah, you know, hanging onto it. And uh, so there are purple poppies now that I'm sure I'm sure PETA and other groups in this country would be would be very happy to know that the animals are also being remembered and commemorated. Um, but if I may, can I may yeah. I uh, pivot back yeah. to something else that that uh, both Jim and uh, and uh, Josh brought up about the the effect on on, on these on the on the colonies. Uh, and the growth of this nationalism in many of those colonies, like India, for example, you sort of see the end of this old order, right? That both Jim and Josh referred to. Um, in India, for example, you had these regiments that went, that went, they volunteered to go. Um, but you know, when you're over there and you're fighting and you're hearing terms towards the end of the war of things like self-determination and democracy, the hypocrite bell starts to ring a little bit, right? Because you know that when you're going home, you're still going to be under under British colonial subjugation. So for many of them, it is sort of the beginning. And I'm not necessarily arguing that they wouldn't have become, there would not have been an independence movement in, in some place like India without World War I, but it certainly helped to speed it up. Um, and, and it put India in a better position towards the latter years of the war when Britain needed soldiers for them to be able to say, well, what are you going to give us then? We'd like some self-determination of our own. And the British promised them home rule, which did not happen until after World War II. Um, so they kind of, there's a bit of a lag time there. But it, you definitely can make an argument that these wars had an impact on places like South Africa, like um, India, um, that, that began to say to themselves, well, if we're fighting in the name of, of, of God and king and country, you know, what about us? So. To that point, uh, I think it is, you know, really one of perhaps even one of the most significant elements, you know, that we clearly don't appreciate. Uh, I think the figure is something to the tune of one-sixth uh, of all of the soldiers who would have been fighting uh, in the Western Front, mm -hmm. uh, you know, with the British and with the French uh, and with eventually the Americans, about one-sixth uh, were from uh, these, the imperial forces, uh, particularly from India. Uh, so we're not necessarily talking about you know, 20,000 individuals and that we need to sort of better remember this. We're talking hundreds of thousands uh, of Indian soldiers who were deployed at a time in which the world is, you know, not to say that the world is not highly racialized now, uh, but in, in a highly racialized time period uh, where they had to sort of alter colonial law to make it acceptable for them to legally take up arms against Europeans. Uh, because this wasn't really fully sanctioned. Uh, and the idea was that this was sort of special, that they were sort of being granted the, the opportunity the to, 
Yes, the privilege to uh, uh, necessarily go uh, and to sort of partake uh, in in kind of a conflict like this. Mm -hmm. uh, but you know, we would of course be remiss if we didn't also suggest not only, of course, the issues of politics um, in a place like Ireland uh, or in a place uh, such as India, um, but also certainly throughout the Middle East. Uh, and the eventual dissolution of the Ottoman Empire, uh, you know, is one of the other elements here of, of the war. The questions of Palestine and issues of statehood, mm -hmm. um, you know, certainly are brought up uh, as a result of this conflict as well, because the British and the French and others are sort of going back and forth through this area, uh, you know, struggling to take territory as the conflict is going on. Um, you mentioned actually race relations, and so you brought something to mind too. Another major impact that the war has domestically is the migration of African Americans from the South to the North, uh, and that has a tremendous impact on on the history of this country. Um, and you also a couple things that were that were touched upon. So f first, we'll start with that. So you, with the you know, one of the things that we like to say, I think, that we sort of pride ourselves on being a little bit smug about in the North is that, you know, we're, we're, so, much, we're so much better here. We don't have the kind of problems that they have down South, you know, that, you know, there aren't, there aren't lynchings that take place in the North. And, um, you know, we, and I'm always struck anew whenever I hear that by what Martin Luther King said when he came to Chicago in the 1960s, which is that he's like, I've been in, the, in some of the worst, most segregated cities in the South, and Chicago's as bad as Birmingham, Alabama. Um, and so when, during World War I, people were going where the jobs were. And so African-Americans were migrating north in search of jobs and factories, so moving to cities like Chicago, Detroit, Cleveland, et cetera, that's where the work was. Um, and they did not face a very welcome reception when they came up here. And so you saw uh, incidents of, of, of race riots taking place in places like, like East St. Louis, Illinois, Chicago, Illinois, post-World War I, 1919, there's one of the worst race riots ever when uh, a young black boy who's about, I don't know, about nine or 10 years old has the audacity to swim in the, in the white section of Lake Michigan and he's stoned to death. And the, the man who did the stoning was not arrested and was let go. And it set off days and days of, of, of race riots in this city. So that's a, a major legacy that World War I has on this country is that we see uh, migratory patterns all throughout the world, but in particularly in the United States uh, with African-American migration to, to the north. It's a, it's a really good point, I think, uh, to, to bring up, particularly for Chicago, given, of course, where we are all located. Um, you know, to your point about those those race riots, uh, of course, you know, 1919 is is a really conflicted year uh, in in the course of U.S. history. Not only do you have uh, race riots across many urban areas in the North, uh, but you also have uh, strikes uh, in in many 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 communities, uh, many industrial communities, uh, and in some cases, such as uh, the city of Seattle. You know, the city is nearly shut down uh, for a few months uh, as uh, labor activists, you know, seek to take over the, the government. Um, you know, it was a time in which many individuals sort of wanted, uh, you know, what they thought they had not been denied, of mm -hmm. course, during the period of, of the First World War. One of the, the stories that has always struck me about the, the, issue, the issue of racial rioting uh, in, in Chicago in 1919 is that black veterans who had returned uh, to their homes on the south side of Chicago 
eventually had to go into some of the armories uh, and set up uh, patrols and defensive positions uh, on the outskirts of their community uh, in order to protect it uh, because of this heightened environment. Um, you know, which I think is a really sort of telling statement about sort of the, the issues of race and to your point about sort of the, um, you know, sort of mythology that we like to place mm -hmm. uh, upon uh, race relations uh, in the North. And I, th I think actually too, to, to build on that post-war theme, you know, one of the things that we haven't mentioned yet that's huge for the 20th century and, and still has repercussions today, if, if you don't have the First World War, you are not as likely to have the, the Russian Revolution in 1917 Soviet Union and then a Cold War that goes on at, you know, or a Soviet bloc that emerges after the Second World War based on concerns, security concerns from the Soviets that date back to the First World War. I mean twice in the first half of the 20th century you know, the Russians had experienced massive invasions of their territory and untold uh, destruction that I think, especially for Americans, is very hard to fathom. You know, I was telling a, a class this morning um, that, it, again, and it's kind of jumping ahead, but, you know, in the Second World War, the Soviets lost something along the lines of 1,900 towns and villages just obliterated, just literally white from the face of the earth. Um, you know, how do you, <laughs> what do you do after that? Well, you decide, look, never again, and you build a really strong set of buffer states outside of your country because that'll slow them down. Um, so I think that that, but you, again, without the First World War, you don't have a Russia that is in slowly teetering on the abyss in many ways, trying to industrialize, trying to modernize from the top down and, and in such a way that is not very, conducive, but is then forced to fight a modern war against industrialized states that it's completely unprepared for. And also, you know, part of this is the Germans being desperate, um, you know, find V.I. Lenin suffering through all the woes of his people, in that, you know, all the terrible things that are happening to, happening to Russia. The communist leader V.I. Lenin was suffering with them in Zurich, Switzerland. <laughs> um, nice and warm and comfortable, eating, you know, very good chocolate and, and so forth. Um, but the Germans actually picked him up and transported him in a sealed train into Russia, um, you know, almost as an act of desperation, like, let's see what will happen if we drop this agitator in. And, and so you get this communist revolution some months later, uh, which again sets all these other uh, events in motion. And I think that's a, a huge impact on the 20th century. Okay. I was struck by your phrase, never again, you know, and I think that that's one of perhaps the other important legacies of the conflict. Uh, in the introduction, uh, I know Jim spoke about this being sort of the first industrialized, uh, sort of truly industrialized war. You know, we're not getting into a lot of sort of figures of different things here, uh, but, you know, this is a war that for the most part, in terms of proportional brutality, Europe hadn't seen since the Thirty Years' War in the 17th century. Uh, it's a war that saw hundreds of thousands of men, uh, in some cases uh, into the millions, uh, participating in, in battles. 
this stands in strong contrast, I think, to what you see in a lot of the 19th century, where Europe is, you know, engaging in a lot of political revolutions, and certainly Napoleon's kind of doing his own thing, and also figuring out that Russia is cold in the winter. Uh, but, you know, it's relatively peaceful. Uh, it's a relatively peaceful century. Uh, and so not only do you have this marshalling of arms in a way that the Europeans had never seen and that many other individuals had never seen, uh, but as a result, uh, you know, the brutality of the war is only going to go up in a way, again, that had sort of never been uh, experienced, at least not for, you know, multitudes of, of generations. Now, I'm not trying to connect the technology of the Thirty Years' War to the technology of the, <laughs> the First World War, uh, but in terms of brutality, um, you know, this was the, the closest thing to which Europeans could perhaps draw uh, a moderate connection. Uh, to go back to what Jim said before about, about Russia, I was immediately had a thought that came into my head that Russian women actually had the right to vote around 1917, but American women still did not during the course of World War I. And I think it's another another legacy of the war that's, I think, important to bring up. I don't know if we often, and I think for us, we think that, that what's happening to us is so immediate and is, is uh, you know, so real that, you know, it's, it's, it's so important, right? Everything that's happening right now. We don't realize that 100 years ago, it, it, you know, it's really a drop in the bucket in the course of history, but 100 years ago, women did not have the right to vote. And uh, during World War I, uh, you saw a, a break uh, occur in the women's suffrage movement where you had women who were dedicated to a more moderate course who were looking to petition the government and, and use sort of a state-by-state -state campaign for each state to grant women the right to vote, and then eventually it would become, it would become a federal law. Um, well, you had another group of women who were fed up with this sort of slow approach and said, we want this to go a little bit faster. We want, we want a federal amendment. We want this passed now, and we're willing to kind of uh, to, to work towards it. So you saw a break occur in the women's suffrage movement, and when the war breaks out about a year later, these women were already picketing in front of the White House every day. You know, Mr. President, how long must American women wait for liberty? Um, to which Mr. Wilson just ignored them and kind of kept going on about his day. Uh, but then World War I breaks out and women are now faced with a choice. Do they continue their pickets every day or do they suspend them? And during the Civil War, women put their campaign on hold because they thought we need to put our efforts towards the war, we need to act as nurses, we need to do what women do during war, which is to basically hold everything together while the men go off and fight. Sorry, guys. Um, but and, and that's what they, they chose to do that during the Civil War and then they felt Many of them were upset afterwards when African-American men got the right to vote and women did not. And so during World War I now, the decision was made to continue this war effort, to continue campaigning and picketing in front of the White House every day while American troops were serving overseas. So you can imagine that the impact that had on, on people seeing these women, these agitators out in front of the White House. Well, they got arrested. They got thrown in jail. Um, they, were charged, they, were, they were charged with obstructing traffic and were, were sent to basically a prison, to a, a work, work prison, a, a moderate prison. It wasn't like maximum security here. You know, they weren't going to Folsom, but they, were, they definitely were in a, they were in a, a, a minimum security facility uh, where they then proceeded to go on hunger strike while they were in prison to, to show their dedication to this cause. And finally got to the point where it was embarrassing President Wilson so much, the fact that these women were, out, were, were continuing their campaign, their campaign in prison the Washington Post started picking it up, the New York Times started picking it up, and it became embarrassing for President Wilson, who was trying to set himself up as this negotiator for the post-war peace, to now say, well, awkward, 
women in your country, millions of women in your country cannot vote, but you're advocating democracy for everybody else in the world. So once again, the hypocrite bell is clanging very loudly. And so Wilson's like, well, I guess I need to kind of play ball here. And so uh, suffrage is passed as a war measure. You know, we, women fought for the war uh, and, and they gave it their all. And so therefore we need, to, we need to grant them this while kind of ignoring, and as many history textbooks tend to do, that there was another element to this, that of these more radical women. Uh, I know when I was, and I don't know if you guys, you guys I'm sure remember this, but in the history textbooks in, in college, they didn't even mention um, the uh, Alice Paul or Lucy Burns, the women who were campaigning th with the National Women's Party for women to get the right to vote. That kind of story was, was ignored. And now they've caught up somewhat. They're a little bit more, they're a little bit better about bringing it up. But that's definitely a legacy for women, is that the war helps, um, helps speed up the process of suffrage. So, very long story there, but. At this point, does anyone out, do any of you have any questions or comments that you might like us to address about this or anything you might like us to expand on? Okay, so if I, if I hear you correctly, you're curious about the Japanese involvement? Yes. Uh, yeah, that's actually, that's another thing that, that doesn't get discussed a lot but is very important for the, especially the future of, and it's kind of circuitous. Um, Japan v opened in the 1850s by threat of force <laughs> um, to Western ideas, very quickly modernizes. And being an island state, they, they copy a great deal. You know, if you're looking to be a very successful island state in the 1800s, who would you copy off of but Great Britain? And they do that, especially with regards to the Imperial Japanese Navy. And there's, there's a very important moment diplomatically. Japan perceived them, the Japanese perceived themselves um, as being sort of the uh, potential overlords of the Pacific. Um, again, you know, creating their own empire in the Pacific, much the way Great Britain had in, in much the rest of the world. Um, and it's certainly being co-equal with the European great powers. And in about 1915, the British are strapped for ships, and they actually ask the Japanese to send some of their navy into the Mediterranean. And for the Japanese, it's, it's like five destroyers, which is not a big deal. But for the Japanese, it was perceived as this huge thing. Now we are, you see, now we're part of this club. You know, we are equal with the Europeans. Um, and, and a lot of their, I've seen some of the actual diplomatic telegrams back and forth between London and Tokyo. And there's, there's a very explicit sense of, you know, now we are part of this, you know, we're, we're uh, on your side. Uh, but at, in the post-war environment, that, that's an illusion. Um, and the Japanese are very quickly disillusioned. Uh, in the early 1920s, there's a series of meetings in Washington that lead to this, several treaties, it's collectively known as the Washington Naval Accords, and the Japanese are, the Japanese felt that they should have the same military strength as the U.S. and Britain in these treaties, but were actually given a second place. Now, from the, from the perspective of London and Washington, you know, we were recognizing Japan's role in World War I, we were recognizing them as a regional power, they, they, should be, they should be quite pleased with the sort of pat on the head and you've done well, you know, but for the Japanese, this was considered an insult and, and relations between the U.S. and Japan start to get colder after that and we, and we all know where that eventually leads us. So, mm -hmm. good question. Yeah, very good question. Any, any others or? 
so hot. Oh, it doesn't work. <laughs> so we want, so let's clarify that. You want to talk about how it be, the origins of it, and yeah. then. What, why would we care about that? Why does it come from World War One? Okay. Anybody want to me to go for it? Okay. Field it. Okay. Okay. So, uh, so we. Oh, this is a. It'll take a while. Okay. <laughs> so, so anybody, I'm going to throw this question out to you guys. What is, the, if I were to ask you, what the purpose is of the of the United Nations today? Does anybody know the answer to that question? Yes, sir. Peace, right? And that was the same idea that, that the League of Nations uh, was Woodrow Wilson's baby uh, coming off of World War I. It was it's the same idea, right? This war was so total in its destruction, so horrifying, that we need to have a mechanism in place for, so that a war like that never happens ever again. Well, that lasted for about not even 20 years because part of the problem was the US never actually ended up joining the idea that we had to begin with. And that has to do with, with American internal politics at home and Woodrow Wilson offending uh, Repub the Republican Senate. And of course, the Senate needs to ratify a treaty in order for it to become law. Um, and, and, and Wilson, Wilson and, and, and Henry, Henry Cabot Lodge not quite getting along very well, not able to compromise very well. So the US does not end up ratifying the Treaty of Versailles, which includes in it um, the, the creation of the League of Nations. So the, League, the League of Nations is, is left essentially weak. Um, and basically kind of limps along through the 1920s and 30s, paying lip service to peace, but there's not really much, not really any, some, some force behind it, some teeth behind it. So when, when World War II then begins, um, 20 years later, um, the, the need for and the desire for a more strengthened League of Nations comes about, because obviously, again, we can't keep having every 20 years a war like this. We're not gonna be left with anybody on the planet if we keep going like this. And so by, by 1945, uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, along with his, his, uh, his wife, Eleanor, who was a, a great proponent, particularly of, of human rights, uh, we see the creation of the United Nations on, in April of 45. Um, and now it's much more strengthened, right? We've got, we've got the US is now fully committed, fully involved, along with its other partners, who if, if you look at the names of those, the people that, had, that have power in the United Nations, it's kind of interesting. It's the US, it's the UK, which makes sense. It's France, which, sort of makes sense if you know French. Um, and you've got, you've got the Soviets, right, the Russians, and you've got the Chinese. Well, at that point, we're BFFs with the Russians, and we're still BFFs with the Chinese before the Chinese become communist, and before we're no longer friendly with the Russians anymore. So um, the good thing about it, I guess, that you could say is that, that, that post-World War II, the UN is much more strengthened. In terms of how well it works today, that's a whole other story, because you're talking about people that have the competing national interests trying to come to agreements on issues of world peace, on issues of sanctions, on issues of war, um, human rights, and they're never quite able to, to, to necessarily come to agreement and all have the ability to veto one another on that. So what we oftentimes see happening is that, um, uh, you know, for example, the Iraq war, when the United States in 2003 tried, tried in 2002 tried making the case before the United Nations, you had member states of, of, of the, permanent member states of the UN Security Council who were not on board. So then the U.S. ended up acting unilaterally because it could not get it could not get UN cooperation. Same thing happened um, in the former Yugoslavia in the 1990s when the UN Security Council could not act. Uh, NATO ends up stepping in and acting acting in a different capacity. So, did I sort of answer your question? Or my colleagues want to jump in on that one too? Anything you want to? I, mean, I, mean, I think I'd add a, a, a few things about the early period that um, also keep in mind that that. As problematic as the UN Security Council can be, I think they're, e even though they weren't exactly thinking this way at the time, 
some of the key players, it still makes sense. I mean, you do have essentially the great powers. Mm-hmm. France, yeah, we can we <laughs> joke about them. Uh, we, yeah, oh, that's that's what mostly we do, right? <laughs> is joke about France. Um, but you know, the U.S., the U.K., China, and Russia are still very significant international players, uh, and and will likely remain so for the foreseeable future. So, having them at the helm, you know, having them represented. Uh, is certainly much better than the early years when, you know, the Versailles Treaty, which I, I mentioned to a class today, is probably, if you're looking for an example of how not to write a peace treaty, that's, you know, one of the key belligerents is not even allowed in, right? The Germans don't have any say at Versailles. They're basically told, sign this or else um, when, when the treaty's written. Right? And, the, and Russia is not involved because they're a communist and they're a pariah state for a while. Like, no one's talking to them. So you're excluding two very significant players in Europe and, and globally, certainly, just whether or not they decided to rearm in the 1930s. Certainly Germany, when it got the economic sort of boon of the sanctions off their backs, would have been an – Germany was a major economic – player in Europe going into World War I without the reparations, which in ways were designed to cow their economy for a time, um, they would have been a major economic player as well. So, you know, excluding major powers from any negotiations, any say in how the world is going to go is, is really kind of a short-sighted approach. It, it gets a little bit better. You know, I mean, there are attempts to fix the League of Nations. Locarno in the, in the mid-1920s when, when Germany, Britain, and France agree to a fresh diplomatic start. But by the same token, there's a sort of, of dream state that, that I think takes place with the Kellogg-Briand Pact. Like, you know, we, we pledge not to use war as a means to solve our international disputes. Okay, but what if <laughs> Unless you get every nation in the world to sign on, you know, you'll have that, what, that one guy who doesn't agree, and what do you do with him? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Just go over there, wait in the corner. But but again, I think there is that. You know, there there's um, one British historian who's made the argument that many of the leaders in Europe, actually two things. Many of the leaders in Europe in the interwar period were kind of the second string, because the best and brightest of that generation, who would be the rising leaders in Europe, had died. You know, if you were going to be a leader, what did you do? Well, you volunteered and you, mm-hmm. you know, you led your unit in on the Western Front. And if you were really a good leader, you, you said, come follow me. So you were the first one out into the machine gun fire. Um, so, you know, you had the second string leaders kind of calling the shots uh, who certainly, you know, weren't maybe the best decision makers, but, but bought very deeply into this idea of war to end all wars and believed that if we just outlawed, if we just make a law that says, well, we're not going to use war anymore, then everyone will obey the law because it's the law. Right. So. Which I think certainly does lead us into a discussion of the rise, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, of the political conflicts of the 1930s uh, and the eventual sort of beginning of, of the Second World War. Uh, you know, y- you do. You have this view uh, on the part particularly of British diplomats throughout the end of the 1920s and the early 1930s that, well, reasonable men can sit down and work out their differences. You know, we don't need to have, um, you know, some type of conflict. Of course, this is later referred to as appeasement. Uh, you know, once we get into this idea of an expansionist Germany, um, you know, run by, uh, you know, fascist national socialists uh, and Adolf Hitler and his Nazis. 
Uh, so, you know, I think it certainly uh, does see a transition from one to the other. Uh, I've heard this uh, in some ways discussed as we should perhaps even rethink how we conceive you know, in terms of periods of the First World War and the Second World War, almost in many ways as sort of the same conflict, mm -hmm. um, you know, sort of continuing on, whereas sort of the interwar period may be a less sort of overtly violent period, uh, more sort of a political negotiating period. Um, I don't know. Mm -hmm. uh, so. And, and piggybacking off, off of that, um, in the 1930s, when we get to the Munich Conference in 1938, when, you know, whenever we're talking about it with, in class, some, sometimes a student may ask, and this is when European leaders essentially are, are appeasing Adolf Hitler by, okay, you just want to take that little part of Czechoslovakia, go ahead, we'll let you alone, you know, you're not going to take anything else, we know you're not going to go anywhere else, we'll, we'll, we'll kind of go along with it. And it's understand, I, I think, it's understandable at that point, because we're talking about less than 20 years ago, you had millions of people being killed in this war, and they, they wanted to do everything they possibly could to avoid another conflict. And so when, when, we, when people, even during the Cold War, talk about appeasement, and you've got to put it in, in, its, in its, its historical context. It's not fair to really criticize them, it's quite understandable understandable to know where they're coming from. Nobody ever wanted this to continue. In, in, in World War I and World War II, I mean, it's just a 20-year armistice in between. It is essentially the same war, but by the time you get to World War II, you've got even better weapons. But um, So I, I definitely think that it's, it's important to, to, to put it in its context and to not necessarily um, come down too hard on these guys because it's, it's understandable to know where they're coming from. And to piggyback off of that, <laughs> uh, to piggyback off the piggyback, you also have the idea that, you know, it, I think today we've, we've gotten into this habit of, and especially in the lead up to the, to the um, Iraq war in 2003, of anything short of commitment is appeasement. Mm -hmm. And I think the word has been misunderstood and misapplied. You know, there are also very pragmatic reasons. Um, Germany and France really did not maintain their militaries because their ec economies were crippled yeah. by the war. They be you have the, the two countries in the world that are extending credit all over the globe, and four years later, they're in debt to someone else. They don't have, and one of the reasons they, they certainly were very proactive about the Washington Naval Conference was, well, this means, you know, if, if we limit construction, we don't need to build anymore. We don't need to spend on our, and, and so they had not rearmed. And when they saw, they, they saw Germany as a threat, they saw the, the rise of Nazism as a threat, but, you know, that's great. What do you do about it when you have no way to defend yourself? You know, and, and, and I mean, it's cold-hearted, but you see it in, in international politics quite often where certainly the French are going to be more than willing to, to sell Czechoslovakia down the road to, sell, to save France mm -hmm. or to buy mm -hmm. time for their own preparations. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I think, you know, that, but I think that appeasement is much more complex than is often put out there. And I think it's also misapplied in, in, a current, in our current context to things because there, it's a very, very different situation that these European states find themselves in. And there really isn't anyone who is capable um, of standing up against an aggressive Germany in 1937 or 38. They're, they are not prepared. They don't. They don't have a military that's capable of doing it. So if you can't fight, what do you do? Well, you bargain. You know, that's, that's your only option. So. Um, another legacy, I think, of World War II, or World War I, excuse me, that, that I think is, uh, needs to be brought up is the legacy on the impact, the negative impact on civil liberties. And it's something that I, I usually, I, I try to draw out of, of a class, and I'm gonna ask all of you here, too, what you think about this, and whether or not it's okay 
to roll back civil liberties during time of war. And just to kind of give you a little bit of context, uh, the U.S. government passed in 1917, the Congress passed in 1917, um, the Espionage and later on the Sedition Act, which basically made it a crime to utter any, any sort of criticism of the U.S. government, to criticize the draft or to protest against the draft, or of course, um, um, uh, sedition to, to utter any kind of uh, negative comment against the, the Constitution or the government. And you saw people being imprisoned uh, for that. One man who resisted uh, the draft, who was encouraging people to resist the draft, ends up going to prison, makes his case, appeals his case to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court basically says, no, sorry, we're, we're going to uphold your conviction and you're going to go to jail for this. The, now, the, the Sedition Act was allowed to expire, but the Espionage Act still remains on the books today and still can be invoked. And so when Edward, Edward Snowden was releasing all these documents to WikiLeaks, uh, go classified government documents, you know, if, if the U.S. government ever gets a hold of him, it's, it's probably safe to say that he might be held under the Espionage Act. And so I guess the question that I think that uh, is important for, for you folks to be talking about and thinking about is whether or not it's okay to, to um, infringe upon people's civil liberties during a time of war. And is that, is that ever okay? Or are you risking democracy even more when you do it? Is it more important even more during a time of war to uphold people's right to free speech, to be able to criticize the war, or be able to criticize whatever they want to criticize, the president or whomever it may be? What are your thoughts on that? Yes, sir. <laughs> so, not a good thing. So you're very much an advocate of, of civil liberties being maintained during time of war. All the time. Thank you. Other thoughts? Yes, sir. D-Day worked, Gallipoli didn't. Oh, okay. So what, what was the influence of Gallipoli, if any, on the planning of D-Day? Um, actually, yeah, there, there, I have seen some stuff on that. The British were more reticent to try amphibious. Gallipoli is something that is, is very much lost in mo much of the history of World War I. Um, although there is an old Mel Gibson movie on it, and it's so old Mel still had an Australian accent. <laughs> So, um, <laughs> for anyone who's looking for something to do, right? Um, but there, the Straits, the Bosporus, that, that connect the Aegean with the Black Sea, um, the idea was to, for the British to get supplies to the Russians, so they were going to send s ships through these straits, which were controlled by the Ottoman Empire, who was against the British and the Russians in the First World War. Um, so the British, dis Winston Churchill, this is what I had alluded to earlier, is, uh, was head of the Royal Navy. Uh, he's, he's what was called the First Lord of Admiralty. And he came up with this idea of initially trying to run ships through these straits at full speed, at which point they found that the, the Ottomans had mi mined the straits. So they sent in these Australian, New Zealand, uh, Canadian troops to try and, and, and it, much of this is very, um, 
very small beaches with lots of cliffs very close to the shore, not much room. And they tried to go up and over these cliffs. It, it was a complete disaster. Um, it cost thousands of men their lives. The British eventually pulled up stakes and left. Uh, Churchill lost his job as first Lord of the Admiralty. Um, so it was, and, and I think there some of, well, and Winston Churchill goes on. He has his time in the wilderness, as he calls it, uh, where he's kind of out of politics. Um, and, and eventually comes back as British Prime Minister during the Second World War. And you can imagine with that in his background, when we start talking about a cross-channel invasion, uh, he's a little bit reticent about that. But as time goes on, I, I, clearly Churchill, I mean, there is, there is some restraint. He's not jumping up and down at the idea. But the other thing to keep in mind, actually several, that Churchill would have certainly was certainly aware of, uh, there's Torch, which is the U.S.-led invasion of North Africa to liberate that. There's also the landings in Italy. We've done this successfully by the time we're talking about D-Day. Um, we're also doing quite well with the island hopping in the Pacific. We've, we've kind of figured out a lot of the, the, the how to do amphibious warfare. And um, we have so much... The other part of it, too, that Churchill was clearly aware of and, and shows up in much of his diary writings is that he is clearly aware of how much material weight the U.S. is contributing. And, it, you know, it's, it's not a good idea to upset your sugar daddy, <laughs> um, <laughs> to, put it, to put it bluntly. And, and so he does kind of go, you know, he, and he very much realizes that, like, we have to go along with this because the Americans want it to happen, and they're providing our material and our food actually. We're feeding Great Britain during the Second World War as well. I think to return to a certain extent uh, to something that Mary was bringing up uh, earlier, I, I think it's important not only to sort of debate the merits of this issue of to what extent are the are questions of civil liberty, you know, very central in time of war, I think one of the legacies of, of the First World War that we also should keep in mind is really the, with that, the pervasive anti-Germanism uh, that existed throughout the period, uh, you know, quite profoundly so. Uh, strong connections are made uh, in the minds of the public uh, that if someone is of German descent, if someone is of German origin, um, regardless of their station in life, uh, or whether they are a recently arrived uh, immigrant or someone who was born and raised in this country, uh, that by virtue of that descent, by virtue of that connection, uh, that they are and somehow not American or in some ways a threat uh, and must be treated as such. Now, this had any number of sort of applications in the daily lives of individuals, uh, from amusing things, uh, such as generally Americans stopped calling sauerkraut sauerkraut, and they started calling it liberty cabbage, uh, because, you know, that'll win the war. Uh, <laughs> that'll get them. Right, yes, that will show them. Uh, you see, uh, I think it was the conductor of the Boston Symphony Orchestra literally arrested for attempting to conduct music that was written by a German composer. Uh, you have, you know, people assaulted uh, on the streets. You have, uh, in fact, the murder uh, in Collinsville, Illinois, of a man by the name of Robert Prager, uh, whose only crime was that he was, in fact, German, uh, or of German descent. 
So I think that you know it's important to keep that sort of legacy sort of in mind when it comes to some of these questions of you know how far we can take certain things. Uh, you know, I think most of us, you know, might focus perhaps on the internment of, of Japanese Americans uh, sort of during the Second World War, uh, and that might be perhaps the defining legacy on some of these issues of treatment of individuals during time of war, although the more recent conflicts, uh, you know, certainly elements of, uh, you know, anti Sort of Arabism, anti-Muslim mm -hmm. uh, sort of strains, uh, you know, have have occurred, um, you know. But I think it's important then to perhaps keep that in that sort of longer legacy and that sort of perspective. Uh, so I don't see it necessarily just an issue of of civil liberty, uh, you know, in that particular political case, right. but an issue sort of there as well. We had, uh, you know, to that uh, in this country during the war to voluntary organizations uh, that had connections to the United States government. Uh, one was something called the American Protective League, uh, and another one was called the Committee of Public Information. Uh, now, the American Protective League uh, had badges, uh, you know, uh, they had badges. There's about a quarter million people, uh, and they would stage things like slacker raids. Uh, so they would go around, because uh, there was a draft in this country at that time, uh, and accost young men who they thought should be in the military. Uh, and forcibly take them down to the uh, draft office and make sure that they were uh, duly, uh, you know, sort of registered for the military. Uh, so, you know, going to families' homes armed, saying, what have you done to buy enough war bonds to support, you know, the country? Um, you know, there are questions of this sort of tipping over into something else. Uh, so. I think it's an important discussion necessarily to have about sort of this idea of individuals appropriate elements of patriotism in a very personal way. Uh, and so, you know, one could argue that there is sort of a spectrum uh, that exists when it comes to uh, those experiences. Uh, so I think it's important for us to at least in some ways keep that legacy because by the census of 1920, uh, you see less people identifying themselves as being of German origin in this country uh, versus the census of 1910, uh, and an exodus had not occurred uh, in terms of that amount of individuals uh, from the country. It was, folks were just sort of not declaring that anymore. Mm -hmm. yeah, Josh, you brought up some excellent points. Um, one of them about the, I'm glad that you brought up the issue of Wagner and Beethoven and Liberty sandwiches and and because uh, we saw a little bit of the stupidity of that. Excuse me for putting it so bluntly. Um, in the in the run up to the Iraq War with the, you know the freedom fries because France was the country in the Security Council that was very much against uh, the Iraq War. So we did see a little bit of that. We saw post 9/11. You know a gentleman who had the crime of being a Sikh, uh, who was not even a Muslim and was not not even Arabic, but who was actually murdered uh, in Arizona uh, post 9/11 in the aftermath and 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 national sentiment was so was so stirred up. But I think one of the one of the differences I think is the, of, of the legacy is that is what has not happened, uh, which is that immediately that that kind of sentiment was quelled in this country. Whereas in World War One, it was almost like it was almost fostered, it was almost uh, developed. Um, and one of the other differences I think, very stark differences, is how tied people were. How many how, how many stakes people actually had in World War One? That people Josh mentioned uh, the buying of war bonds. You know, we funded World War One and World War Two in part through the sale of war bonds. 
and you know you, you so you're whatever I mean, I'm making the $5 now and then later on you're gonna get maybe your investment of 10 bucks back let's say if you if you put some money into the government right now and one of the things I think that's a stark contrast to our more recent wars is how little people are asked to sacrifice. People were asked to sacrifice tremendously during World War I and World War II. You know, having your liberty garden, growing your own vegetables so that you wouldn't be taking food away from the troops who needed it. Um, you know, prohibition is put in, in, into effect by saying that, you know, that we need that grain for the troops. You know, you can't use it towards your beer, which is, you know, a crime in and of itself, but that's another story. Um, but, you know, but now, in recent years, for our recent wars, what sacrifices are we really asked to make unless you are a serviceman or it's your family or you're, you're directly impacted, impacted by that? For the most part, we're just going about our daily lives and none of us are really impacted by it. Whereas in World War I, every day people were living it when they were sacrificing their, their shoes for their rubber for, for the war, their tires, more in World War II. But, um, and, and in World War One, being asked to grow your own food and so that you're not, again, taking away meat or things that need to go for the soldiers. So there's a, there's a definite stark difference in how I think that we, uh, we approach these conflicts. We're not asked to really sacrifice much. Yes, so you have a question? So the question is, uh, because we, the one thing we learn from history is that we don't learn anything from history. So therefore, you're asking basically, can, can World War I happen again, or is that? I think as an historian, it's a tough question to answer because the nature of the discipline, as I've heard it described, is the study of man's inhumanity to man. Uh, <laughs> so we spend much of our time sort of being Debbie Downers, uh, you know, very, you know, very negative about different things, uh, you know, uh, spend five minutes with us and we'll ruin every Disney movie you've ever seen, uh, you know, uh, whether you want us to or not. Uh, but to, I, I think it depends, uh, which as well as another fairly common historian's answer. Uh, you know, I, I can say that the power of the individual has grown exponentially, uh, you know, over the course of the last hundred years and certainly over the course of the last 30 uh, with all of the new sort of technologies and access to them uh, that we have, uh, you know, yeah, elements of history, themes of it certainly repeat themselves, um, but there are innovations that I, you know, one could say do give us hope. Um, you know, if we were to take this back to a study of hundreds of years prior to the First World War, you know, we'd look at things like life expectancies, uh, you know, where those are quite different. Um, perhaps today uh, than, than certainly during those periods. One of the things that we haven't uh, sort of discussed in terms of a legacy in this panel yet, uh, for example, would be the, the influenza uh, pandemic, the Spanish flu, which didn't come from Spain, uh, wah, that wah. occurred, <laughs> spoilers, uh, <laughs> right after uh, and at the sort of tail end of the First World War, which and again, taking figures somewhat with a grain of salt in that it varies widely by whoever you read, but 
you know, this is a, a global pandemic that occurs between 1918 and 1919 and conservatively kills at least 25 million people, uh, if not more, uh, probably uh, more individuals than the Black Death in the 14th century. Um, are we better prepared uh, and better cognizant of our ability to project force to try to combat things like this? Well, yeah, you know, you could make an argument that we have a better capability to do that. So, you know, can we see hope in that? Sure, uh, but are things still comparatively bad for some folks? Sure. <laughs> I had to throw my little Debbie Downer sound effect for him because he had to bring in the Spanish influenza. <laughs> wah, wah, everyone's dead. Okay, so I'm going to go a little bit more Pollyanna-esque on this one, and, and I think that one of the differences um, post-World War I uh, and post-World War II is that our economies are so much more intertwined now than they ever were before. And there's, there's actually a theory out there that every country that has a McDonald's has not gone to war with one another since they've, they've, they both have their McDonald's. That in other words, globalization kind of brings us together, right? When we, when we, yeah. <laughs> and there's, there's some, I think there's some, some legitimacy to that, though. I mean, it's, it's not going to be in your best interest to go to war with another nation if your economic interests are tied to that nation. So it's less likely that the U.S. and China are going to go to war, war with one another. First of all, they're not going to go to war with one another conventionally because they already are going to war with one another in cyberspace. That's already taking place right now. Um, you know, how many times that the Chinese are trying to hack into our, our, our databases and, and vice versa. So that, the whole face of that has changed dramatically. Um, but I, I, I do, maybe I'm a little bit more, a little too optimistic here, but I, I do like to think that, that the more closely interconnected we are with one another, the less likely we are to see a, a conflict of, on this particular scale. So watch, I'll make a liar out of myself in a couple of years, but hopefully not. Hopefully this tape will have been destroyed by then. So. <laughs> yeah, I, um, I think build, piggybacking on that uh, is the idea that there's also a great deal more diversity. I mean, it was very easy for these governments to create an other out of an opponent you know they're different from us and especially because if you're getting you know if you're getting your average german peasant or american farm boy or whatever he's probably you know he's never been to europe he has no idea and you know you're quite honestly in 1914 your average german peasant really hadn't seen a frenchman they didn't travel that much and today i mean if you look around this room this is a very good solution because you know, it's very easy to turn to the person next to you and go, well, hold it, Fox News just told me you're all like this, and they, no, we're not. <laughs> <laughs> I don't agree with that, you know. Um, so it's, it's, it's much harder, point being, it's much harder for, for any media outlet, whatever it be, you know, ABC, Fox, whatever, TMZ, where I get all my <laughs> news, right? Um, <laughs> But that's the, the French and TMZ are actually what we joke about most in the <laughs> history department. So the truth is out. Uh, but you know, I think you get the idea that there's when you have a diverse environment, when you have a when you have a globalized world, it's not only are you trading with one another, not only is it not in your nation's best interest, but you interact with people, and it's really hard to to, you know, demonize the foe when you go. Well, hold it, I'm working next to this guy, and he's a whatever group right fill in the blank and he's not like that he you know we actually get along pretty well and if there's anyone we don't like well it's the boss and that has nothing <laughs> to do with race or creed it's you know it, but you get the idea you know we, i think we can get a lot more find a lot more likenesses rather than differences um and i think too that that 
you know, in certain ways, a lot of this idea of, of great power kind of conflict, like you had mentioned, the, the America-Chinese example, I, I could be making a liar of myself now, but I, for the foreseeable future, that is much less likely. I mean, it's not only are we at war with China in cyberspace, but we actually encourage them to try and hack our sites, and the, and you know they encourage us to hack theirs. Why? So that we can make sure our security systems are up to date. You know, so we it, it almost becomes, you know, fright. And, and I think the part that you know, I guess for the for the downer, right, for the yeah. downer part, <laughs> the part that becomes almost frightening is it then almost becomes war games, right? Then it almost becomes well, we're just playing at this until someone crosses the line, right? Uh, whatever that, whatever line in cyberspace that may be, but I think the other part of it that, that is kind of more disturbing is that that you also it was mentioned individualization. You also have these small splinter groups that can get their hands on unparalleled levels of technology, for good or ill. Mm -hmm. You know, there there is another side to that coin where we can communicate with one another much more easily than any humans ever have in our entire history. But we can also, you know, spread viruses, both in cyberspace and, and real viruses, uh, more readily than we've ever been able to. So I think, you know, the, I guess there, there may not be a rosy portrait, but there is hope. Um, and there is the possibility that, that equipped with some understanding of these things and, you know, mistakes that we can learn from the mistakes people have made. And, and we will probably make new ones, but that's the nature of humanity. You know. But at least if we're making new, yeah, I, that was, yeah, I think well we should done. stop no there. Yeah. <laughs> this, this, is, this is the Costanza, right? We're out. <laughs> <laughs> but thank you. Uh, any other, any additional questions or comments? That was a nice ending question for us, sir. Thank you very yes, much. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> thank you.